he's going from like looking at her face to oh right there's that guy there to i wonder what her butt is like and then <laughs> when he's imagining her ass it's what wonders is she sitting on over there <laughs> Welcome to Black Box Poetry. Thanks for sticking with us while we took a brief hiatus. I'm Anastasia, and we're we're back. We are back. We promise. But I'm joined today by my two delinquent co-hosts. Say hey, guys. Hey, my name is Sean, and I study uh, Victorian poetry. My name is Isaac. I'm a poet and translator of Russian and Ukrainian. Today we're going to talk about persona poems. So, team, what the hell do we have to say about persona poems? Well, one of the things that we realized when we were putting this together is that we have a really contemporary slate of poems tonight. And when I was thinking back on the kind of prehistory of the persona poem, it occurred to me that if you look at all the 19th century precursors um, for a poem where the, where the poet is speaking in the voice of someone or something else, it's it's a much bigger production of the 19th century. So this kind of move starts early in the 19th century uh, with poets like Felicia Hemans and um, Eliel and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And they'll write poems in the voice of sort of classic historical women, often uh, on the verge of throwing a baby into a volcano or committing suicide uh, or some like, like incredibly intense situations. And when Hemans first starts doing this, there has to be a head note that, that sort of gets you situated and says like, all right, reader, you're about to like, get some like full on first person baby and volcano like <laughs> monologue. And that's understandable because how would anyone know that's what was coming? Um, you know, you need, you need fair warning when, when you're going to get that kind of monologue. And then, you know, a little bit later in the century, you have people like, okay. All right. Wait a minute. Browning. Before we get monologuing, we've got babies and volcanoes and somebody speaking that isn't the person speaking. That's that's all I, I got on my point very quickly. I can I, I just I, I can round out my point very quickly, <laughs> which is that a lot of the famous like uh, poems where the the poet takes on a, a persona other than themselves in the 19th century are called dramatic monologues, and the shortest of these are still reasonably long. Um, and I think the reason for that is that when you are new to the experience of being thrown into the voice of a, a person who's not the poet, you need a little time to get your bearing. Um, and so when uh, Elizabeth Browning and Robert Browning and Tennyson start to experiment with this as a way to produce poetry. They tend to go along as a way of kind of setting up for the reader. And in the 20th century, people start condensing that maneuver to something much more um, sort of focused. Okay. Long poems back way time away. And people used to pretend they were other people. And now they do it in fewer lines. Awesome. That's what I have about persona poems. Isaac, what you got? Well, one hesitates to follow first-person baby-throwing action, although that does give me an idea for a mobile game with microtransactions where you get more babies or, or more volcanoes. We can kick that around. <laughs> what I'd like to do is take us to etymology, which is because that's what I do. It's true. Persona and person are both a, a sounding through per... Is, is through sona, sonus is sound. So the the voice is sounding through some kind of medium and a medium is an intermediary. It's a medium between two things. So just keep those rattling around in your head when we're talking about 
persona and I think you'll find it nutritious. Fascinating. Cause I was good. I was going to throw in that. I love the fact that you bring sounding through. Cause I guess I know we're all just leaning right into our stereotypes. I was going to bring in the fact that persona comes from the Latin for mask. And part of what you have to like kind of play around with is the masking of an identity um, and stepping and kind of having to deal with that. The fact that the poet really has to retreat out of the poem to get this kind of masked effect of who the speaker is. So well done, team. We've got audio, we've got visual, and we've got like the whole course of history. Excellent. Ace. It is it is kind of perfect that on this episode about wearing a mask, about, you know, um, going beyond yourself all of us were the most cliched version of ourselves we could possibly be. <laughs> we're off to a great start, too. <laughs> you know, what I'm intrigued by is describing uh, masking oneself as a retreat, because you are retreating behind the mask, but you're also sort of thrusting the mask forward to be your intermediary. I think there's hay to be made there. And I mm. think a good way to start that would be with a persona that is very strikingly different from the poet mm -hmm. of necessity because this is Louise Gluck becoming a flower. Oh, so you're reading from the Wild Iris, right, Isaac? I am. And for the folks at home, if Anastasia tells you to read a particular book, you just go home and read it. You don't take like a month to read it like I did. I'm, I'm sure you're busy. We're all busy. If she recommends a book, what you do is you go home and read it. Or ideally, you get it on your way back and read it on the subway. Isn't it mind-blowing? It's totally skull-shattering. It, it really is. I don't recommend monotheism or psychotropic drugs, but if you're looking for that effect, you can just read this book and you will get it. <laughs> all right. So... Back to Glick. What are we reading? What poem are you directing so, us to? The poem I'm directing you guys to this evening is Trillium, which comes very early in the book and serves to sort of introduce this unifying conceit of flowers as personae. So through the course of the book, she's speaking through different flowers, right? So it's not like she's not always talking through Trillium. She's also sometimes one of them. She's like talking through a poppy, stuff like that, right? Is she yeah, ever a wild uh, iris? <laughs> I feel like I'm being made fun of. Let's let's just <laughs> read the poem. Trillium. When I woke up, I was in a forest. The dark seemed natural. The sky through the pine trees, thick with many lights. I knew nothing. I could do nothing but see. And as I watched, all the lights of heaven faded to make a single thing, a fire burning through the cool firs. Then it wasn't possible any longer to stare at heaven and not be destroyed. Are there souls that need death's presence as I require protection? I think if I speak long enough, I will answer that question. I will see whatever they see, a ladder reaching through the firs, whatever calls them to exchange their lives. Think what I understand already. I woke up ignorant in a forest. Only a moment ago, I didn't know my voice if one were given me, would be so full of grief, my sentences like cries strung together. I didn't even know I felt grief until that word came, until I felt rain streaming from me. So the contention that I'd like to offer as a way into this poem is that 
any poem to some extent, but especially a persona poem, and especially one where you're watching a woman become a flower, which is quite a distance to cover, functions a little bit like speculative fiction, where you're being brought into a fictional universe. Let's imagine it has fictional technology or something along those lines. And as the writer is building their world, you have to learn what this technology is capable of and how it changes the society the characters live in. A bad writer will dump that exposition on you. A good writer will weave it into something character-driven. A persona is, by definition, a character who's speaking and who's introducing you to a radically different consciousness. And I think Gluck is really demonstrating the maximum case for that version of what a persona is here. It's interesting that the, you use the word character. I think thinking about character versus voicing is an interesting distinction to make. So in that first stanza, right? When I woke up, I was in a forest. The dark seemed natural, the sky through the pine trees, thick with many lights. So from the very first line, we get that eye, we get that lyric voice, right? So one of the special things that we get with a poem is that, that lyric eye, that lyric speaker, which is different from the way characters operate in the sense that you don't always sit in a character's consciousness in the way that the lyric kind of invites you to sit in an investigation of a singular consciousness. Characters are more, or at least the way I think about it, is character kind of plays out in front of you, whereas this is more inviting you to occupy. So it's interesting to think of it as a character. I usually think of it more in terms of like voicing, but I think it both work. It's just a really interesting way of like, how do you place yourself as the reader in the poem? Um, so when, you know, when I woke up, I was in a forest, that eye places itself right in the middle of a forest. And I kind of feel like it's inviting us to place ourselves right in the middle of that eye in a very similar way. Yep, I'm right in that forest, right next to that eye or right inside that eye. Yeah, I mean, one way that you can think about it is what would it be like to be a specific thing? Like there's, um, there's an anecdote where um, Keats was out playing billiards with his friends and he like reportedly said, I wonder what it would be like to be a billiard ball. You'd be so wonderfully round. And there's something about like a kind of limit case for describing sensation itself when you're trying to sort of work through something that doesn't even have human organs. The lack of organs is so part of this poem, right? I knew nothing. I could do nothing but see. It's like, okay, so we don't have a brain that we can kind of draw on, but we're still like, it's still being described sensorially or like perceptually. Well, and not just uh, sensorially, but even optically, I would say. We have a, a specific observer who is positioned in space and we look from that perspective. And the line breaks actually foreground that perspectival quality. In the second stanza, we have, I knew nothing. I could do nothing but see. And as I watched, all the light of heaven faded to make a single thing a fire line break burning through the cool trees cool furs the cool furs pardon me so what gluck has done here is hung the entire sun over a line break i'm, I'm just <laughs> astonished. Yeah, yeah that's a good way of putting that yeah, yeah. i have to restrain the the fanboying i promise i will restrain it but it's just we did do her recently, and I wanted to bring her here, and I tried not to, but it's like, you know, she can be anywhere she wants. Who's going to stop her? Me? <laughs> yeah. It's so true. 
Um, one question yeah. I have for you guys, and Isaac, I, I haven't talked to you since you finished this book, but one of the things that was interesting for me when I was reading it was, and I guess it's reading the poems a little bit like a riddle, which I know we're not supposed to do, blah, blah, blah. But um, I couldn't help but always look in the flower poems for when it was clear to me that it was a flower and not a person. Mm. Right? I don't know. Do you guys have a moment when it shifts for you? When you're like, there's no way this is a person speaking? In this one, it's hard to say. I do think because I didn't encounter it in a book, because I encountered it knowing that it was Louise Gluck speaking as a flower, that hadn't occurred to me. But it's true that I, I would have no idea when, when the shift happens. Yeah. Within the poems themselves, I think it's really interesting that I actually don't get a like clue that that's what's happening. I don't know that I, like in isolation, it tells me that it's a flower speaking. This is very much one of those books that teaches you how to read it as you go. So the device of flower as persona, I don't think is quite meant to be obvious from a single poem. You're meant to sort of experience it over time. The aspect of persona that I think we can productively talk about in the context of one poem here goes back to the argument you were making a moment ago about the lyric eye. This is the sort of most stripped down subject, the most stripped down eye it's possible to imagine. It's just constituted as a seeing subject in this forest. And in a Western context, the most abstract pared down subject is a seeing subject that just wakes up in this forest with no context, with no apparent knowledge of its surroundings that is building its entire universe over the course of the poem. It's like the most extreme distillate of that I that a poet could offer, I think. It feels like one of the interesting side effects of that kind of denuding process that you're talking about is that it weirdly creates an incredibly abstract experience of the world so that, you know, not only is it sort of processed in terms of like, I knew nothing, I could do nothing but see, it very quickly shifts towards these like high abstractions. Are there souls that need death's presence as I require protection? I think if I speak long enough, I will answer that question. I will see whatever they see. There's kind of a weird way in which like this sort of really weird visceral experience of being stripped down to one's most limited form also is to be forced to be abstract. And that makes it even more amazing at the end of it when she says, I didn't even know I felt grief until that word came, until I felt rain streaming from me. Because the image that you would have there wouldn't be like crying because the water isn't formed by the the thing that has the water streaming from it. That's such a, a like awkward way of saying it. But, you know, like it's like the this thing that came from outside of you the experience of shedding it of having it rush off of you would be like a, a really weirdly visceral experience and so it's really interesting that if the starting move is we're going to strip down to just sight the concluding move is you still have a body Oof. yeah i think it's very interesting that the water moving over this body is defining its shape and that's something that would be accessible to an outside observer, but is not accessible to this flower itself that is just woken up. I think there's something about that that suggests the flower is 
aware that it's being deployed as a persona, as a sort of model of consciousness by a less abstracted consciousness that is grappling with the issues in the second to last and the last stanzas. Because the shape being defined by the water running off it is something that's perceptible to an observer. It makes me think of uh, Alex the parrot who a linguist was working with, who was supposedly the first animal to ask an existential question because he asked the linguist who was working with him what color he was. So he had to know that she could see him and he couldn't see himself and that she could give him information that didn't exist in his own mind already. This is an extremely impressive parrot. <laughs> yeah. And an extremely impressive yeah. trillium. <laughs> yeah. Are we good? Do I we don't feel think like we... we Extremely impressive trillium. I think we have to end on extremely impressive trillium. Okay. Yeah. No, right. we've, we've got, we've come to a good place. Okay. Yeah. So which one's next? All right. So I want to do a poem by Audre Lorde called Cole. I think it's going to follow up on some of the things we've been talking about with trillium. It's another really extreme case because the poet is taking on an inanimate object or inanimate substance rather than like the voice of another person. And similarly, I think it, it, it goes through a sort of process of stripping away and, and thinking about the conditions of experiencing something or of, of saying something. Cole, I is the total black being spoken from the earth's inside. There are many kinds of open, how a diamond comes into a knot of flame, how a sound comes into a word colored by who pays what for speaking. Some words are open, like a diamond on glass windows, singing out within the crash of passing sun. Then there are words like stapled wagers in a perforated book, buy and sign and tear apart. And come whatever wills all chances, the stub remains, an ill-pulled tooth with a ragged edge. Some words live in my throat, breeding like adders. Others know sun seeking like gypsies over my tongue, to explode through my lips like young sparrows bursting from shell. Some words bedevil me. Love is a word, another kind of open. As a diamond comes into a knot of flame, I am black because I come from the earth's inside. Take my word for jewel in your open light. I'm really struck by how this has a very similar feel to the Glick poem with this like kind of nascent quality, this like very nascent, not quite formed and very simplified kind of being that's speaking that is like kind of reduced to certain senses. But this one's interesting because this is reduced almost lack of language, right? And this like kind of acquiring of words and the ability to speak or the ability to kind of voice. And it's again, that kind of feeling of like, I woke up not knowing, right? Or I, out of the total black, out of the silence, I am speaking. And what I like about that comparison is for both of them, you have an experience as a reader of wondering how is how is this person going to pull an entire poem out of this? Because the position of the speaker has been so reduced. And I think that's especially true in this case because coal and diamond is a sort of really familiar dichotomy and part of the way that I think this poem works is by doing something sort of iterative. So rather than sort of saying like coal is this and diamond is this, it 
it's much more interested in sort of like doing several things with coal and several things with diamond and having some of them really overlap with each other and others sort of diverge and sort of, you know, um, slip away. And the other thing that I feel like this poem seizes upon is a really interesting use of kind of like peripheral sort of things. So I'm thinking about the moment when it says some words are open like a diamond on glass windows singing out within the crash of passing sun. The thing about those three lines is that there are several points where you can make connections among the terms that you're given. Diamonds and glass are both clear. The crash of passing sun is like a lens flare going through a clear medium, but also a diamond on a glass window makes you think of like nails on chalkboard or something scratching something, but it's so sharp that it won't break the glass. So the crash of the passing sun is actually not like the um, what's going on between the, the diamond and the glass window. So it feels like this kind of like almost ludicrously shiny moment in the poem. And it feels like that's sort of what is being contended with from the perspective of Cole is this kind of fantasy of perfectly shiny, perfectly strong, perfectly translucent. The the poem seems to be sort of working for a different kind of a different kind of bulletness and a different kind of expressiveness. I think there's something about that dichotomous quality that is really unlocked by the physical properties of diamonds and coal, or I should say the physical relatedness, because if you wanted to transfigure coal into diamond, you would subject it to extreme pressure. That gesture would be the opposite of opening, but the diamond here is figured as opening because we have the expansive facets of the diamond when I envisage that, I'm I'm seeing the diamond opening up out of the coal, even though the physical process required to make that happen would be exactly the opposite. There's something inherently dichotomous about that image that makes me as a reader more prepared to accept the seemingly contradictory effects that the poem produces. Yeah, the opening feels complicated when you're dealing with just the way that diamond is compression, right? But when you get that light flare that you suggested, Sean, that really helped me get what happens to the words next. Because when it says, then there are words like stapled wagers in a perforated book, that's a huge leap that she pulls off. We were thinking about words that are related to diamond, like very organic and kind of these rock solids, these kernels, these like hard forms And then we go to a book with staples and paper. That is a crazy jump that she makes. And thinking in terms of the opening gives me that kind of opened book with the stapled wagers in. And I can kind of see how that doesn't completely throw you off course, but then evokes that we're no longer in this shining moment of, you know, first there was the word, right? We don't get that kind of logos moment. Now we have these kind of overburdened, broken, you know, words that we don't really value that we've, that are kind of just IOUs. You raised a really important point there that it's the optical quality that makes the opening out something that the reader can visualize. That also sends me back to our first poem because it's invoking the possibility of an observer. You've got this lump of coal and this diamond for the 
facets and the light playing on them and the window and all those other optical effects to perform that effect of opening out. There needs to be an outside observer there to watch that happening. So one of the things that occurs to me at the start of the poem is when it says I as the total black being spoken from the Earth's inside, one way of taking that is that it's a play on the black vernacular. So like I is instead of I am. But it also feels like it's very knowingly converting the I from a personal pronoun into something much weirder. So like the analog that I'm thinking of there would be I is another. And one of the things that's strange about this poem is that it is during the poem itself referring to Cole as this sort of vastness and expanse where the diamond keeps being singularized as the kind of alternative or the antithesis of Cole in the poem. And so I think one of the things that the poem sets up for itself is it sets the conditions by which Cole is going to be individualized. And the way individualized at the end of the poem is by uh, being set on fire. So it says, a diamond comes into an auto flame, but then it says, I am black because I come from the earth's inside. Take my word for jewel in your open light. And the way that I understand that to work is that there's a kind of translucent crystalline shiningness that you can attain in the condition of fire, which is, I think, one of the most venerable descriptions of poetic ecstasy there is. Um, I think like a classic description of the condition of prophecy is that the Lord puts a burning coal on your tongue and and sort of compels you to speak. That sort of becomes the way in which the speaker is individuated at the end of the poem. And it winds up being defined in opposition to the sort of like ready-made individuality of the diamond, which is sort of a gemstone, as opposed to being a burning expression of something that comes from the core of the earth. I love what you just gave us, Sean, but do you mind if we do kind of a really brutal back and forth between the two points that are being riffed on? It would help me to kind of see how that's playing back and forth. Yeah, I think that's a good thing to try and do. I mean, like, one of the things that's difficult with a poem like this is... Isaac, are you there? Yeah, okay, I'm, there. I'm, I'm not a potted plant. Can you see me? <laughs> no, we can't see you. <laughs> the video is... I, I, I didn't 100% understand your question, but it's probably because I'm dense. Can you say it again in smaller words? Yeah. Yeah. I guess I don't totally understand. I'm curious what you guys, how you guys read those last three lines of the first stanza, because it feels like that's the key, like a key to figuring out how that gets re- inverted in the last stanza. And I'm having trouble figuring out how a sound <coughs> comes into a word colored by who pays for what's speaking. So how far am I supposed to play that metaphor? Am I supposed to be thinking in terms of the way the cover of the Pink Floyd album, like the way that light changes color when it goes through a prism, but now this is being made sonic? And then how does that help me in the last stanza? Does that make any sense? I'm having trouble unpacking those lines. So let's let's try to do like a very empirical, very like explain it to me like M5, which is something you can't really do with poetry, but trying to do it is very productive of what what's being described here. That's what I want. So, I mean, like to say like how a sound comes into a word is interesting because you're emphasizing the sense that like the word is something that exists before the sound. And that I think captures the way that words have to be voiced by specific people. So there's a a sort of idea of like 
there's a word and then a sound has to come into it for it to be voiced. And then that's a specifically racialized way of speaking here when it says like colored by who pays what for speaking. I understand that to be saying, you know, even if the same word is being spoken by two different people, the impact of the word or the way the word is understood is inflected by the race of the person who's speaking it. And that in turn is sort of defined by the sort of like very matter of fact material condition of paying what for speaking it, which is to say, what are your conditions for speech and what are your conditions for reception? So then th that's, that's the way that I understand the, the first gloss that we get on how a diamond comes into a knot of flame. Okay. That's interesting. That helps because I was reading it, how sound, how like phonemes become words, right? These aren't just like random sounds anymore. They get formed into words, right? Not just phonemes, not just the la, whatever. Yeah. And then once those kind of accrue into words that we can recognize, then yes, that certain words become valued differently based on who the speaker is. So kind of a, again, in that trajectory of thinking in terms of like nascent moment coming into being. And then the fact that that being, once once it has come into being, that being is questioned by or challenged by status and race and how that kind of functions within a larger system. But okay, that helps a lot. And then how do we get down to the last stanza? So the way that I understand the last stanza, which is to repeat it, love is a word, another kind of open. As a diamond comes into a knot of flame, I am black because I come from the earth's inside. Take my word for jewel in your open light. So I think we have like a series of substitutions there. So I think the first one is that diamond coming into a knot of flame, which is sort of impossible to visualize because diamonds don't burn. I understand that as kind of like a flare of light flashing through a diamond. That is substituted with, I am black because I come from the earth's inside. Take my word for jewel in your open light. And my sense is that the way in which a piece of coal can have a jewel-like quality is through the kind of like flash of burning light. And then... The way that I understand that connecting to the in your open light is that there's something about being seen from the outside that is the kind of like necessary possibility for taking on this kind of gem-like quality, which I think in a really simple way is just coal doesn't burn underground. It burns when it's, you know, exposed to oxygen and is part of the world. But I feel like what is happening with the first line of the last stanza when it says love is a word, another kind of open, is to sort of make the basic condition for exposure to open air, like being part of the world, existing among other people, and that that is the way in which the, the, the sort of like burning piece of coal comes to flare out by its own power where the diamond can sort of, you know, transmit light that it takes from the, the sun or, you know, something like that. Yeah, I, I very much agree with that reading in terms of the mechanism and the role that an interlocutor or an other or an observer is playing in that mechanism. I think that mechanism can also run if you emphasize the fire as light on facets reading rather than the literal fire of a burning coal reading because mm -hmm. light couldn't play on the surface of a gem underground. It has to be taken up into the 
common day world and has to have sunlight fall upon it to flare into light in that way, in the optical sense. That that gets back to the idea of uh, the dichotomous nature of coal and diamond, that maybe those two readings have to be sort of impacted inextricably in order for us to get the full effect of the poem. Because I, I do love the the direct reading of the, the coal burning, because uh, we've already invoked prophets, you know, the burning coal in the mouth. There's all kinds of resonances there. I think we, we need to let the uh, let both those readings sort of hang in the air because they both work with that mechanism you're just describing. We good? I think we're good. Yeah, and I think that kind of actually leads pretty well into the last poem we've got because one of the things I'm shocked, shocked that this keeps coming up, but it is really interesting, is who kind of gets to view the speaker or the way that the speaker will articulate who is being viewed um, or who can kind of see or, or recognize that identity. The fact that 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 seeing keeps coming up is really interesting and is basically the engine that operates, that creates the tension in this poem, which is Dream Song 4 by John Berryman. We've talked about Berryman's dream songs before. Interestingly, like Glick, these are uh, these play out over a very long series where he adopts the, he adopts the same persona uh, for the most part through the whole the whole experiment. So it's not quite the same as Glick, but again, it's a series. So are we moving on to that? Yeah, let's do it. All right, guys. Here we go. Dream Song 4. Filling her compact and delicious body with chicken paprika, she glanced at me twice. Fainting with interest, I hungered back, and only the fact of her husband and four other people kept me from springing on her or falling at her little feet and crying. You are the hottest one for years of night. Henry's dazed eyes have enjoyed brilliance. I advanced upon despairing my spumoni. Sir Bones is stuffed de world with feeding girls. Black hair, complexion Latin, Jeweled eyes downcast, the slob beside her feasts. What wonders is she sitting on over there? The restaurant buzzes. She might as well be on Mars. Where did it all go wrong? There ought to be a law against Henry, Mr. Bones. There is. I don't even know where to start with that. We I mean, have to I talk about it as a persona poem, or I'm just going to start yelling lines from it that I love <laughs> all of them. Okay, so we, we've got to give the necessary background, which is that Henry is the is the main character of the dream songs, and Henry speaks in the first, second, and third person, and he has one companion who's never named, but occasionally refers to Henry as Mr. Bones. John Berryman knew the name of the companion, but he refused to ever tell anyone so that someday an assistant English professor could become an associate English professor by cracking the puzzle. Oh my God, this is the creepiest fucking poem. Um, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so one of the weird, okay, so well, part of what makes this so fucking creepy 
unlike the other two is the other two poems seem to come out of this like nothing and then we just have this like right we have this flower that kind of like bleh, like just kind of like this like little like f unfurling from the earth right and coal you have this like deep in the core of the earth and like logo springs forth right so it's like from nothing into something but with dream song four there is a full functional person a creepy man named henry speaking this like this isn't coming out of nothing <laughs> like this creepy man exists out here somewhere <laughs> and and as an opening gambit filling her compact and delicious body oh man <laughs> chicken paprika yeah i mean like i've got nothing <laughs> Oh, my queen. <laughs> yeah, so part of what makes this one so bizarre is that compared to the other poems, what makes this so strange is this feels like just like a flash moment, right? We're just getting this one brief window into what this person does with his life. And then we just get spiraled right back out of it again. And it's just this like horrifying flash. And you can almost like cinematically feel the cut where it's like, ugh. Yeah, there is a law against you. Ugh. It's the moment when it says the restaurant buzzes, she might as well be on Mars, which is so evocative. Yeah. Because if you think about whenever you go out to a restaurant with friends, there will eventually be a point where you run out of things to talk about. Like maybe only for like a like a you know like twenty seconds or something, but it's gonna happen. And then you just sort of hear all of that noise around you and you're like we're all terribly alone. And this this poem is sort of capturing that feeling at a really amplified level because Henry is even more more alone than he knows. Also, just like the sound quality of this poem is great. I mean, all of the poems that we've talked about tonight have been like, you know, like beautifully sounded. This one, it just adds to the kind of awkwardness of it, like filling your compact and delicious body with chicken paprika. She glanced at me twice. Fainting with interest, I hungered back, and only the fact of her husband and four other people kept me from springing on her. The, like, act noises over and over and over again, like A's and K's, so, so clumsy and awkward. Perfect. Uh, and you didn't know that CT was a noise like that until Berryman told you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's I, I want to, uh, about the, the, the restaurant buzzing, I think the husband is playing a critical role in that yeah this is this is ann carson again she talks about how in all love poetry there's a gesture of triangulation that has to happen you have to have the lover and the beloved and a third point and that third point strives to measure the distance between the lover and the beloved without which there could be no tension those are the uh, two nodes between which the electricity jumps when the circuit is completed, whether it's a erotic circuit or a metaphorical circuit. So you need the husband there to define the distance. It's uh, Sappho has a poem like this where she's looking at a girl and her husband, and the husband is defining the difference between her and the girl. That's really useful that you bring that in, Isaac, because one of the things about that line, the restaurant buzzes, she might as well be on Mars. There's not only the distance between the um, characters that are at play here, right? The husband, the woman, and Henry. But there's also the distance from the persona itself, right? So although there's that distance at the end of the Glick poem when the rain is falling on the leaves, that's such a like brief moment and it's characterized in a way where it could be crying that you don't pull totally out of the persona 
Whereas because Henry is third person, right? So it's a little bit cinematic while still kind of adopting this persona. We also get this other kind of zoomed out quality where the restaurant buzzes. She might as well be on Mars. We're like, we have kind of the whole restaurant that we have to contend with. It's claustrophobic. It's a very claustrophobic poem, but it's claustrophobic in a very different way than the other two poems are because we're not so locked in that eye. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I feel like one of the things that happens during the poem is that different sentences get dragged out in different ways. And mainly thinking about the middle stanza when it has the kind of imagined quote where he says, you are the hottest one for years of night. Henry's dazed eyes have enjoyed brilliance. That's so, so evocative of a certain kind of pathetic desperation because what he's trying to say is you are hot. But what winds up coming out is, you are the hottest one for years of night. Henry's dazed eyes have enjoyed brilliance. <laughs> it's like repetitive in the extreme. And the repetitiveness is trying to evoke some kind of poetic grandeur. And it just becomes more and more and more grinding and redundant and dull. And then that's what sort of sets up the, I, I advanced upon despairing my spumoni. <laughs> And then in the next stanza, you have a similar thing where he's trying to describe her and he can't actually keep focused on the woman who he's looking at. Black hair, complexion, Latin, jeweled eyes, downcast, the slob beside her, feasts. What wonders is she sitting on over there? Even the fact that like when it becomes specifically pervy, when it goes from black hair, complexion, Latin, jeweled eyes, which is kind of like a blazon, like a like a Renaissance poet describing a woman. Downcast, the slob beside her, feasts. What wonders is she sitting on? So like, he's going from like, looking at her face to, oh, right, there's that guy there, to I wonder what her butt is like. And then <laughs> when he's imagining her ass, it's what wonders is she sitting on over there? <laughs> That's, but it, that's what makes the restaurant buzzing so sad is that like this loser is trying to imagine her ass and like it's 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 an ass over there it's not even, <laughs> even even in the realm of fantasy it's not proximal you know but but in fairness to pervs there's more going on there than just imagining her ass he's saying what wonders is she sitting on that's a pun you can sit on information or resources or money you know i have money i'm not investing i'm sitting on it mm -hmm. i have a mm -hmm. secret that could give me an advantage i'm sitting on it this is sort of undetonated erotic potential over there as well as the 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 literal and and no doubt equally delightful meaning there's more going on here yeah yeah well, and that's so wrong that's so available too because of all of the like crazy uh, the crazy detail that's kind of given to us about all of the other random things happening, right? So the chi the specificity of the chicken paprika, the spumoni, yeah. like, it's like, yeah, <laughs> she he really might be talking about like a feather cushion that she's sitting on, but also her ass. Like, what? <laughs> it's so weird. I don't know. I'm all out of things to say. <laughs> Where did it all go wrong? <laughs> Where did it all go wrong? <laughs> That's a phrase that I think about on a nearly monthly basis, not in connection with staring at people in restaurants, but just because like this poem has energized that phrase. It's like, you know, um, rubbing iron shavings with a magnet. Where did it all go wrong now? Like to me evokes, I'm an idiot. <laughs>
<laughs> there's uh, there's lots of M's in that last stanza. You got a complexion. You got might as well be on Mars, mm-hmm. Mr. Bones. The uh, sound play continues. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Latin jeweled eyes slob. Yeah. Ugh. Black hair, complexion, Latin jeweled eyes. He's, he's, he's making your tongue do perverse things there just by reading the <laughs> poem. Just, just feel that in your mouth when you read this. Berryman is making you do that. Yeah. Is it filling your compact and delicious body, Isaac? <laughs> My body is not as compact or as delicious as once it was. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. So, what does this teach us about persona poems? <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of things that have jumped out at me over the course of the conversation, and this is not a topic that I thought about a lot. So, like it, the the two things that really leapt out at me are one the way that persona poems require us to build up from a, a position of lack. So like one of the things that's really striking here is that in the first two, especially in a different way in the third, there's something about the sort of experience of being thrust into a situation that requires you to pay sort of an excessive amount of attention to the poems line by line. And I think that's what Isaac was getting out at the beginning when he was saying that this is the quality of persona poetry that feels like it's paradigmatic of poetry more generally. And then the other thing that occurred to me with these three poems is how they all kind of hearken after or imply an outside to the persona in different ways. So for the for the first two poems, you have this kind of like inanimate, highly abstracted persona, and it, it's still sort of energizing all of these things around the, the persona. So like the sun or the medium in which the, the persona exists and then in this one, in a different way, the, the the sort of introduction of additional characters over the course of the poem really defines how you understand the persona that you're occupying by setting up those kind of reference points. I'd like to continue on your second point. My favorite thing about these conversations is that I discover things over the course of them that we didn't know at the beginning. And what I found most surprising in this one was how much we talked about the world around the persona in terms of reference or in terms of points of view. The phrasing I found very memorable was, Anastasia, you referred to this last poem as cinematic. I think to some extent, the way we've talked about all of these poems is cinematic because all of our readings have required a camera. Mm, Yeah. very much... uh, preoccupation with points of view and i think this may be playing a similar role to the triangulation in love poetry that we were just talking about that in order to define a persona with a high enough level of resolution that one can write a poem through that persona one needs points of reference outside it that you can define the position of a persona based on its relative location. And just as the trillium needs to have its shape defined by the water, there needs to be that outside referent or medium in which the persona exists for it to have a meaningful location to begin with. It's funny how all three of us found that to be the most interesting part 
of this conversation because I was not expecting us to think so much about points of view either. I really expected this to be a conversation that was going to be about speaking and voicing and how a voice gets thrown or changed or built. But it's interesting that to build these voices that are so distinct from the voice of the poet and that we are supposed to read as being so distinct from the voice of the poet, we end up actually relying on some of the other tools in the toolkit besides voicing and sound. We end up relying on things like optical positioning or other reference points. I think that's, I guess that makes sense, but it's not what I was expecting. Yeah. Oh, maybe we can talk about voicing as such in a future episode. Yeah, sure. This has been the uh, the very model of a modern podcast. Like, I think we have an hour, an hour and fifteen minutes of material in an hour and a half of recording. My mind is blown. Yep. <laughs> it is. It is very rare that we move with this much alacrity. That we are this alacrific. Well, it's thanks to. Uh... Gluck and Lord and Berryman. We've got two pounds of TNT in a one pound bag here. (laughs) That's the end of the episode. (laughs) Good night, everybody. We're going to be yelling more lines from the dream songs. (laughs) 